The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. That's loud enough? Not loud enough? No. A little bit louder? A little louder still? Is that good? Good, great. Okay. So, welcome. So, it seems like a long time ago now, but uh, in the fall, I started a series on the Eightfold Path and giving one talk for each of the eightfold, uh, eight, eight, eight factors of the path. And so every Monday, almost, almost every Monday that I've been here, I've given a talk uh, going through them. And now we're up to the seventh factor, which is right mindfulness. So that's what I'd like to talk about today. <clears throat> so um, the context for the, this teaching on right mindfulness is the path of practice called the Eightfold Path. And the image of a path um, suggests something you walk, so you bring all of yourself to it. And, um, and so the Eightfold Path is meant to bring all of yourself to, to it, uh, your understanding, your orientation, your intentions, motivation, your behavior, how you relate to other people, um, and uh, how you relate to your own mind, how you cultivate and develop your mind. Uh, not for its own sake, but rather uh, to get somewhere, because a path goes, from, goes someplace. But it's not a real path, and so it's not like you can come to IMC and find the Eightfold Path here. We don't have it here. It doesn't exist at IMC. Um, the path exists in you, if you walk it. And so, if it's a path to get somewhere, uh, uh, you know, where does it get you? So, ge- generally, when we think of a, going someplace on a path, we think of going from A to B. And uh, I prefer to think of the path of practice because it's not a real path, but rather a path in your heart or within you, as um, <clears throat> going from A to A. And the why I like A to A is that it's not a matter of you know, getting something or attaining something or, or um, it's not, you know, it's kind of dangerous, a little bit dangerous to have the idea of a goal out there that you're going to attain in the future. But to really inhabit here, to really show up here is quite an unusual thing because most people um, don't really live very present in their lives. And so it's a path to really be, be here, but be here in a way that's free and liberated. Some people might think that the path of being here is rather limited, because here is a limited world. It's, you know, it's, you're left with yourself. Um, and it might seem a bit limiting to, sh- to kind of really come here and be present in this life, in this body, here in some clear way. Uh, and they'd rather be free, running around, doing what they want. And, um, but if we look at what it means to be free, uh, we need to look at what motivates the behavior, that's free behavior. And so, for example, if uh, what motivates you is desire and greed to get things, have experiences, acquire things, uh, then freedom would be uh, unfettered opportunities to get what you want. And some people, like who have wanderlust, feel most free when they're off wandering around the world, traveling, which is a beautiful thing to do. Uh, I don't want to knock it. But if the motivation for it is <clears throat> strong desire, <clears throat> and that's what's driving it, and you can't sit still <clears throat> because a desire is so compelling, 
<clears throat> the person's not really free. They're under the control of their desire, and the freedom is only the freedom to live the desire. Not real, it's not freedom from desire, it's freedom to be propelled by desire and be unfettered in desire. So same thing with fear. Some people are very motivated by fear. Fear is a big part of their life, anxiety, worry. And sometimes they can run in circles or run around agitated or run this way and that way trying to fix things and take care of things. And as long as they're busy doing all this stuff and unfettered in their fear, then they can manage with it. But if they stop all the doing and just sit with themselves, they find out that um, the fear is quite a strong, compelling force and it's very hard and difficult. And they'd rather be free to run around like a, you know, you know, uh, in an agitated, restless way. So freedom in Buddhism is not the freedom to do whatever you want. Freedom to shop, freedom to whatever. But rather it's freedom from compulsion, freedom from restrict the inner restrictions, freedom from the, the forces within us that push us and drive us and require us to, uh, to pursue our desires, our animosities, our hates, our angers, that, pursue, uh, that somehow have us caught up in the whirlwind or the panic or the uh, whirlpools of fear that uh, can come along. So in Buddhist practice from A to A, is to really show up and be here, to dive into here, to enter into this world in a way that initially can seem quite limiting. Uh, because uh, to be really here, it doesn't seem as wonderful as being everywhere else. Um, I've sometimes had the particular delusion and desire that was connected to the grass is greener somewhere else. So whatever I'm doing, it's not good enough. Like someone else has a better thing. It's a, you know, or, you know, if <clears throat> if um, neighbors are having friends over and they're laughing, well, and my friends are in my house, well, those friends are probably better friends over there. You know, <laughs> you know wondering what's going on over there. What am I missing? Um, and not really here for these friends. So, um, so he the practice. You know, is a to a is to really dive in here in such a way that we can work through the compulsions, the drivenness, the fears, the desires, so that we're not always on the move and have our freedom that way, but have the freedom here because we're not driven in any way, we're not afraid, we're not escaping from something. Some people find it seemingly very limiting to do that, but to enter into this world uh, here uh, opens up to something quite expansive. So this is what I would like to try to describe today through the path of mindfulness. So right mindfulness is uh, the kind of mindfulness, mindfulness practice, that helps us in this task of becoming free, of freeing ourselves from desire, from fear, from hate, from all these things that keep us kind of going and churning and, and, uh, and constricted. Um, so in talking about right mindfulness, the Buddha uh, defined it not by a singular term, like a particular mental faculty, to pay attention, for example, but he, he described it as being a, a set of different practices that you somehow work together in a coordinated way. 
And, uh, and um, so the first thing about the, these, this set of pra- coordinated practices is he talked about um, what's called the four foundations of mindfulness. And, uh, or the four places, four ways of establishing mindfulness. And so here, the instructions are that it's useful to pay attention to four particular domains of A, four particular areas of our experience here at this time and place. Sometimes when mindfulness practice is given, it seems like we're, uh, the, the goal is just to be in the present moment and be, have open awareness to whatever is happening. Now that's a wonderful goal uh, in and of itself, but sometimes paying attention to everything leaves us paying attention to what isn't very productive. So, you know, I can, a lot of people in America can have one-pointed attention on their television. But I don't think a lot of people have become liberated by watching television. I don't think that's been that effective. <laughs> Though, you know, uh, maybe, I hope, someone has. <laughs> but the, um, <clears throat> or, you know, you could pay attention to anything, say, well, let's pay attention to my, the, the, my the toenail on my little toe. I don't know how many people have gotten enlightened by paying attention to, you know, bringing careful attention there. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that what the Buddha directed attention to four particular areas that he found to be particularly useful for the purpose of becoming free. And these four areas are, the first one he called the body, the second is uh, something that he called feeling or feeling tone, the third is um, mind or the mind states. And the fourth is, I like to translate the word dharma here as truths, the four truths, but different ways it's trans- so It's probably best not to translate it at all, but the four dhammas are for the area. The, the, we'll get to that. So four areas, body, feelings, mind, and the truth. And um, it starts with the, uh, uh, so it's useful to pay attention to these areas of our life. So it starts with the body. It's useful to pay attention to our body. The body is an amazing place because it's, the, um, it's what houses or contains both our suffering and our happiness. It's where we find um, both the ways we're constricted, limited, um, and the ways that we become free. So... Um, uh, and in fact, it's kind of like the same location for both, depending on what's happening in those locations. If I pay attention to my fist, my hand, and I make a fist, I can feel the limitation of my fist, my hand being all bunched up and tight. If I release it, the same place, the hand, now I feel a certain kind of vitality and flowing energy and warmth and freedom and usefulness of an open hand. It's the same location. If what if what I want to have is a free hand, I bring my attention to my hand and feel the restriction of the fist, and release it. So the same thing in our this, this physical body of ours. Much of the ways in which we are caught, attached, limited, constricted, um, occurs uh, with a physical basis, a physical area. So this is the place. This is the location where the work is. This this container. Everything's within this phantom lung body. The work that we're going to do. And um, so the beginning of practice is to plunge into here, the A of this body, this time, at this place. And here, uh, to do that, for some people, it's quite difficult because sometimes they've never done that in their life. 
and the momentum of their uh, desires, their fears, their wondering mind, their preoccupations, the doing uh, activities that they have are so strong that it feels like they're going to die sometimes to sit there and be present for your body because they're not giving in to the usual activities that they want to do. It feels very limiting. Some people who have, um, um, you know, are used to um, wandering around a lot, doing a lot, um, and find their joy and their happiness from doing many things and going around in the world a lot, will find it um, kind of restrictive to sit here and be still and just be quiet and focus on your own body. But if you learn the art of it, it's like going into A, you come out in a much more expansive A. It's quite a beautiful process. So to begin by focusing on what's going on here. And so there's a series of instructions for how to pay attention to the body. Uh, It usually begins with uh, paying attention to your breathing. Because uh, for many people, uh, mindfulness of breathing, meditating on the breath, is a way of helping to train the mind, to settle the mind, to stabilize the mind, the attention, so it can really be here in a high-quality way. So we can begin paying attention more carefully to what is actually here. As people begin paying attention to here, to this body here, the body can provide lots of information. The body is a repository of tremendous amount of information about what's going on for us, our reactions, our responses, our feelings, uh, our thoughts. And uh, so much so that uh, sometimes when people have come to me uh, and asked me, uh, it's not uncommon for people to ask me to recommend a book to read on Buddhism. And generally, I don't like to answer the question because, you know, it's like matchmaking. How do you, (laughs) you know, I don't know what book is a good match. So I'd usually say, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> but uh, sometimes, uh, I'll, you know, if you're the right person and, and I think I'm not at the risk of irritating them, I look at them and I say, um, oh, the book you should read is right there and I point right at them, in their, right at their heart. That's the book you should read. Because I re- generally, genu- genu- genuinely believe that um, the, what you really need to study is not what's in some book, but you really need to study what's in your psychophysical being, starting with your body. The body is a door in to the depths of who we are. So to train ourselves to learn how to stop and pay attention in some high-quality way is a really important part of this mindfulness training. So then the second foundation of mindfulness is mindfulness of something called feeling or feeling tone. And this is something very simple. Um, uh, This is the idea that every experience that we have has one of three flavors. It's either pleasant, or it's unpleasant, or it's neither pleasant or unpleasant. So, um, uh, you know, if someone gently strokes your arm, maybe it's pleasant, but if they pinch you, it's unpleasant. Um, Maybe if they kind of brush against you casually in the store, it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant, because it's it's not either a massage, nor is it a pinch, it just a little mistake they brushed against you. Uh, so everything is supposed to fit into those three categories. And uh, it's kind of interesting, or very interesting for some people, to start, as you start being present in your body for your experience, to notice that your experience that you have has these three flavors. Because it's often, um, uh, uh, it's the nature of the flavor that we have that we react and respond to. 
So if the if the if the flavor is pleasant, some people are driven to want more to get attached. If it's unpleasant, some people will either push it away or pull away. If it's neither pleasant or unpleasant, some people just kind of space out or something. Um, so it's, so to get a handle about how we tend to react to our experience, it can be helpful to tune in or fo- bring into focus how our experience is unpleasant and unpleasant. Part of the power of this simplicity is that it cuts through the amazing brilliance of your mind to make things more complicated than they need to be. So I can be sitting here and, um, you know, I could be sitting here and feel a little bit of some kind of unease in my, what, in my ankle. And, um, and uh, then I could start thinking about um, you know, what I did today and maybe I walked too much today and probably I should get more shoes and, and it's hard to get shoes for my size and why don't they make shoes my size and I need to write to someone to fix this problem. And so, you know, I can go on and on with that uh, or I can just uh, bring my attention to the uh, unpleasant feeling in my ankle and um, feel carefully what's there and feel that probably what I need to do is um, give my ankle a massage or maybe just kind of not sit in half lotus uh, when I've tired my ankle. And You can tune into the simplicity of it and get different kind of information than if I tune into the complexity of it. But the simple reaction being for and against is there. So I hope that was clear enough. Is that okay? You with me? Because it gets more interesting <laughs> if you follow this simple thing. In the discussion, so, so the idea is to drop in, to, to show up here for the direct experience of your life through your body. So you have to really be here. When you can be here in your body for your experience, then you start noticing uh, something about your experience. And the first thing the Buddha says directs your attention to is to notice the flavor, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And then he divides up these, these three categories of feelings into two, these two, three kinds of feelings into two categories, two domains. There's those feelings that belong to the world of our five senses. And it's those feelings that belong to an inner world not connected to the five senses. So if I get that massage, that's a sensory pleasure because my senses are being stimulated in a nice way. If I get it pinched, that's a sensory experience because my my senses, my skin, my my touch uh, nerves are being stimulated. So the same thing with smell or taste or things you see or hear. Uh, You can have pleasant or unpleasant things there. But there's also what we feel inside. So if, for example, you feel uh, peaceful where do you feel that peacefulness? It's kind of, you know, maybe you feel in your heart, you feel in your chest, you feel kind of inner radiance perhaps or stillness inside that you feel. If you feel um, um, uh, regret, uh, say that you offended your best friend today by say, doing something that maybe was not so nice to do, then you maybe you feel kind of regret, you feel kind of heavy and weighed down. Where's that feeling of being heavy and weighed down 
It's somehow inside. And so it doesn't belong to the sensory world of, sens- of the five senses. It belongs to some inner world that is not of the senses. So the Buddha says it makes this distinction between this inner world and an outer world. And in both those worlds, you can, you can uh, tune into whether the experience is pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral. So this is very interesting because now we're beginning to be here in A, in this experience right here, and we're beginning now to distinguish between two different aspects of here, an inner world and an outer world. And as we begin uh, moving into the inner world, that's where we discover the world of freedom. Because uh, freedom is not found by getting a better massage. That's not the point. Or having more pleasant experiences in our life. If you're only free when things are pleasant, you're not really free. The idea is that freedom is much deeper than that, um, that allows you to be free in any circumstances at all, in such a way that your happiness, your peace, your well-being is not conditioned by the sensory world around you, with the conditions of the world around you, but there's something you have within. So in the second foundations of mindfulness, the instructions are to begin also becoming aware of this inner world and this very simple thing, is it pleasant or unpleasant? How is it for you right now? Then we come to the third foundations of mindfulness, which is, uh, the word is um, uh, mindfulness of citta. And citta means, uh, usually translated as mind. I think it might be better to translate it as a mind state. And so the mind or the heart state. So as we become aware of this inner world, there's the, the general quality or state of this inner life that we have. It's not just pleasant or unpleasant, but it has different other characteristics as well. So for example, um, and what the Buddha talks about, is that if, the, uh, um, if you're gripped by greed, then the inner state is characterized by greed. If, you're, uh, uh, um, if there's no greed there, then it's not characterized by greed. Uh, if it's gripped by hate, and then it's, the inner state is characterized by, by hate. It's kind of like a mood. You can feel this mood within you. Um, so to start becoming aware of the inner mood uh, becomes part of the task of mindfulness. Because as we become aware of the inner mood, the inner quali- the, I like to say the quality of our inner life, then we start becoming the custodian of that quality. We begin realizing that probably the most valuable thing you have is the quality of your heart. Some of the most beautiful and profound and meaningful things that people have in their lives are not the things of their life, but rather the, um, the quality, the, char- the feelings that kind of can be said be of the heart. Love, peace, compassion, freedom, that it's felt from the inside. Um, you know, I, I consider it to be the qualities of the inner life, qualities of mind, qualities of heart. Some people will say, no, it's, uh, you know, it's my family that's important, or my friends are important. Uh, yes, but probably the reason they're important is because of the way that you connect to them through your heart, through the qu- uh, quality of heart that's a high quality. If you go around being greedy and hateful and spiteful at home with your family or your friends, um, your friends still, still might be important, but you're probably not getting a very high quality connection to them. So, uh, when the Buddha, when this third foundation of mindfulness, he talks about the mind state or the inner state, the quality of it, 
it's possible now to tune into that quality of our mood or inner life is variable. And you can feel it being in different ways at different times. One of the things you can feel is that sometimes it's contracted and sometimes it's expansive. So that the texts talk about an expansive or contracted mind. And probably that's something some of you have experienced from time to time, that sometimes your, your mind, your heart, your mood gets all contracted, you're caught up in some concern, and other times you feel quite relaxed and open, it feels quite expansive. Um, and if you have a, a nice nap, you've eaten a nice meal, and things are going basically well for you, uh, you can go out on a beautiful sunny day and look at the mountains and feel quite expansive. Um, another day, uh, you've gotten the letter from the IRS saying that you have, you know, there's a problem with your taxes, and you go out of your house and you don't notice anything, but you know, you're just like caught up in your world of you know taxes and you know what am I owe now, and and um, and so you feel much more contracted or limited because of the concern you have. Uh, uh, so you can feel sometimes the, the consciousness, the inner life, sometimes darkens, gets small gets heavy, gets weighed down, uh, gets troubled. And sometimes it feels the opposite. It feels expansive, it feels light, it feels transparent, it feels uh, translucent, it feels expansive in some way. So so the instructions is to start noticing the shifting quality and characteristic of the mind state. The Buddha, in this instruction, doesn't say you you should be one way or the other. He just says in this instruction, just notice the shifting quality of how it changes through the day and over time. Uh, become familiar with it. But he's talking to people who are meditating. And so part of the instruction is also to become aware of these things in meditation, where you tend to have a much wider range, uh, if you meditate well, of, expe- of, of feelings of expansiveness, openness, um, stability, uh, steadiness. Um, <laughs> and a sense of freedom. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> Especially those of you that... So, um, so all this is... Built, all this is it's kind of like information gathering part of the practice. So we learn to arrive in the present moment, to be here at A in some high quality way. And A means to really dive into yourself, into your body, your experience of breathing, experience of your body, the feeling tone, what it feels like. And as you kind of go into this deeper and deeper, you start noticing, even without trying, start noticing that there's a mind state, there's a mood, there's a, a heart in there that has a certain quality and characteristic. And, and that quality can be high quality or can be low quality, depending on what's going on in your life. That's just information, just to notice these things. Then we get to the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the fourth area of mindfulness training. And um, this is begin to notice what's true about how we get, uh, what affects the quality of our heart. What affects the heart, whether it's um, enslaved, caught up, trapped, restricted, attached, clinging, or whether the heart is liberated or free. And, um, and it's the truths about those things which keep the heart unliberated, keep it caught, and those things that keep the heart free. Those are the truths we begin to notice, noticing. It's the patterns, it's the causal connections, it's the cause and effect relationships that have bearing on the quality of the heart. And the task here is now not just to gather information, 
but actually to begin to understand how this works. Um, how um, uh, attachment gives rise to feeling uh, suffering. How the release of attachment gives rise to feeling of freedom and liberation and peace. So the first task here is something called the five hindrances. So I'm not going to tell you the all five because there's enough lists for one night. But uh, these are the five different areas where we tend to, um, um, five areas that we tend to lose our mindfulness, lose our attention, lose our wisdom, because we're so caught up in desires and aversions. And um, so whenever you get caught up in a really strong desire, so you hardly even know that you have a desire, you just want something, then you know you're lost in this hindering quality of mind. It hinders our ability to have a heightened sense of, of, of attention. It also it creates suffering. So the task here is to begin to notice how is it that you get caught up in something like desire? And how do you free yourself from the desire? What, what's, the, what's the path? What goes on here? What are the feelings, the emotions, the beliefs? What, what's coming into play that gets you so wrapped up around desire? And once you're wrapped up around desire, so how do you free yourself from it? How do you let go of it? So this is the task, is to see this. Because as we begin bringing this kind of understanding, then we get a certain degree of mastery. We're not the victim of desire. We're not needing to just be able to if we're suffering, we're not just suffering better. Uh, you know, sometimes the way mindfulness teachings is taught, uh, it would seem that the instructions are be really mindful of your, of your suffering, um, seemingly so you can just suffer better. <laughs> but the task of being mindful of your suffering is not just to be mindful of suffering so you can suffer better, but rather to understand it in some deep way. So not only can you free yourself from the particular suffering of the day, but you understand the patterns, the causal conditions that bring about suffering, so you don't have to suffer so much in the future. So this is the task of the fourth foundation of mindfulness. And you have a much better place to study this, to pay attention to this, if you're really in A, if you're really here in a high-quality way. So we enter in through the body, breathing and body. As As we begin to stabilize the attention here in this body and breath, then we start noticing um, some of the feelings and qualities of what goes on. And that helps us to separate out the inner life and the outer life, something that's not often recognized so well in life. And so we begin sensing the inner life, which is where suffering and happiness and freedom resides or can be felt. Then we start noticing how it shifts and changes the quality of this inner life. And that gives us a possibility or a vantage point to understand something about um, the causes and conditions for the shifting nature of our inner life. So that we can start um, choosing or have some mastery over what we do in relationship to it. So we're not the victims of our the mood, we're not kind of just uh, by accident and by circumstances that we feel free or happy or peaceful but that we have some mastery or we have some choice or we have some ability to negotiate uh, uh, this life of ours so that we can safeguard the high quality of our inner life. When we do this and we have this higher quality of inner life, then the world feels quite expansive. And this is where mindfulness or attention or awareness uh, uh, 
has these really wonderful qualities that um, um, that are probably hard to or difficult to probably characterize in some essentialist way or absolute way that this is how it is. But um, <clears throat> people talk sometimes about... Uh, today I was meeting with people who talked about um, every in every experience, in the heart of every experience you have, is a taste of the infinite. Isn't that a beautiful expression? I thought it was kind of nice. And so, uh, the taste of the infinite, what a great thing. So, um, um, I'm just content with peace. <laughs> you know. But yeah, they, uh, or they feel, one of the beautiful things is as awareness becomes quite expansive, um, and a lot of peace, the sense of self, of self-referencing that we often live our life by, falls away. And it's quite a relief and quite beautiful to have a certain kind of um, um, uh, transparent or, or um, um, you know, the, the classic Buddhist the word is empty experience of self. To feel... Um, uh, the self-referencing, self-consciousness has dropped away entirely. So, in this peace and this freedom, uh, there's a kind of lack of self-referencing or lack of self-consciousness, which is um, feels so much better than how most forms of self-referencing work in our minds. And so, and then Buddhists talk about not self as part of that experience, and that's you know then then if you try to philosophize about that, it gets complicated very quickly. But if it's mostly just a matter of relaxing and opening up and having the consciousness become expansive, so expansive and so relaxed that there's no self-referencing, that's fun. Much more fun than philosophy. The, um, so, so in this process then of the truth, the fourth foundation, the last of the of the thing that you, uh, the Buddha emphasized that you want to understand is the, uh, what's called the Four Noble Truths. And uh, to see, really see how the Four Noble Truths work in the details of your own heart. So the Four Noble Truths are uh, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the path leading to the end of suffering, which is the Eightfold Path. So now we've kind of come in a full circle because the Eightfold Path begins with appreciating the Four Noble Truths. But as a person goes along in the path of practice uh, and goes deeper and deeper into this path, at some point, especially with mindfulness being strong, it's possible to see and experience the Four Noble Truths in a much more intimate and visceral way uh, where it becomes obvious and direct that the Four Noble Truths are operating in our lives. And at that point, when we can really see it for ourselves and have some tremendous confidence in the value of, of, um, of orienting our life around the Four Noble Truths, a person is said to become independent in the Dharma. Isn't that a great term? Independent in the Dharma. So meaning that you understand the practice, you understand the Dharma for yourself, and you no longer rely on a teacher uh, because now you know something for yourself. And that's part of the goal of this Eightfold Path, is to go from A to A in such a way that you can really be A, you can be independent, you can be the teacher here. 
And in case there's a danger of having too much conceit around being, you know, independent in the Dharma, you can't be independent in the Dharma. Uh, well, there's a lot of self-referencing going on. Isn't that nice? So you can't take much credit for it. So, the Eightfold Path, there is a right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, and then right effort, and then today, right mindfulness. All these things work together, they, they support each other, they coordinate it together. And, um, and right mindfulness is a really important stepping stone for this deep inner work that we're doing in uh, this practice. And then the, um, the next time I'm here, which I guess is probably next, maybe next Monday, I'm not sure. Um, but uh, next time I'm here, the, um, uh, the final step of the Eightfold Path, which is uh, right concentration. It's the coupling of mindfulness with concentration in such a way that mindfulness can um, do its most penetrating work. So, we have about five minutes. If any of you have any questions or comments you'd like to make about this, you're welcome to. Something wasn't so clear. Well, I just have a kind of humorous comment. So um, last night I watched Men in Black 3 with my husband, and um, there was so much awareness of agitation in my mind and body as I'm watching the monsters flying and all the daggers going. I, I had to get up and leave. It was just... It's, it's ruined me. <laughs> I can't watch move the movies that my husband enjoys anymore. I hardly watch any movies at all, but anyway, I gave it a try last night, and it was a horrible failure. <laughs> and so and the practice has ruined you? No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> in that, in, as far as movie watching, yes. It's, well, uh, please express my apologies to your husband. <laughs> if, if coming here has somehow you know, made your home life a little more awkward, <laughs> you, you, you can't share this with him. But it, it, you, It'll get better as you become free or you'll be able to watch and not get agitated. Yeah, I was waiting for that to happen, but I was so aware of the, the bodily um, manifestations and the, my, the agitation of my mind and body. It was, it was uh, not pleasant. Yeah, yeah, it, it might take a few years. <clears throat> Keep 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 going with the practice. Eventually, you can be there with your husband, <laughs> watching black, black men. Black, I don't know men in black. <laughs> I don't know this. So okay, maybe that's enough. Yeah. May I ask you to list the five hindrances? Oh, list the five hindrances. <laughs> Which is 
Or the hindrance. So people who do our practice here, the mindfulness practice, um, it's really good to become um, experts on the five hindrances. It's kind of like one of the important tasks of our practice is to really understand them so you can smell them coming. <laughs> so um, uh, uh, the usual uh, list, there's actually two versions of the list, but the usual list is um, uh, desire, uh, ill will, uh, in English, uh, in English Buddhist, Buddhist English, the next one is called sloth and torpor. And then the next one uh, usually is restlessness and regret. And the last one is doubt. Doubt. So these are, I think, I call them sometimes the black holes of the mind. <laughs> because when they become strong, black holes, you know, light goes in but can't come out. Awareness goes in, it doesn't come out. <laughs> you know, you get caught up in one of these things. Is that in your uh, issue in? Is it in the issue at handbook? I don't think I have anything there about the five hindrances, but on our website, there's an article page. I have a lot of articles I've written that are not in the book. And there's, a whole, there's six articles on the five hindrances, a general overview of them and then an article for each one. So you can read about it there. Okay, so what I'd like to say as, as we close is that if this kind of talk tonight seemed complicated with all these things, you know, four things, now the five hindrances and the four noble truths, um, uh, uh, I'd like to encourage you to remember that the practice is meant to be simple and a lot of these things open up and reveal themselves in due time by, by themselves. You don't have to go looking for them. And so maybe the most important thing I would like to, you to leave with is a hugely big part of the practice is to go, is a path is to go from A to A. So to really be here and to learn how to be here for your experience right here and then the rest of it hopefully will open up for you. So may you be your, may you thrive in your particular version of A. (laughs) 